0: Hi and welcome to the Stat Dose Podcast. My name's Joe Francis and
1: I'm Matt Young and this is your up-to-date dose.
0: So hi guys and welcome back to the podcast. Today we're going to be talking about intoxication and ingestions particularly focusing on paracetamol and alcohol as substances that are commonly ingested. This topic was sort of born out of a paper that's been published in September of 2018 in the British Journal of General Practice, and it's titled Poisoning Substances Taken by Young People, a Population Based Cohort Study, and this is by Tyrrell et al.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, this, this was quite a large piece of work, actually, where the, the study group collected data from the Clinical Practice Research Data Link. Don't be alarmed if you haven't heard of that. I haven't heard of that either. <laughs> this is basically a, a large sort of database that pulls from several other smaller databases where you have anonymised uh, GP records. There's around 10 million patients who are currently registered in the UK, um, and it also includes documents related to secondary care, so things like discharge summaries, clinic letters, and that sort of that sort of nature. So it's quite a, a useful resource for study groups to use. And this group we're looking particularly at the uh, records of poisoning episodes in young people, and they defined young people. As between aged ten and twenty-four, which I I take much
0: annoyance <laughs> as, um, I, I consider myself a young person, but I, I do fall outside of that, that bracket. We're, <laughs> I think I think the um, the main thing to focus on here, Matt, is that we're all dying slowly. Oh,
1: okay, yeah, that's probably a good point to start the podcast on. Um, so the the study group that they looked at eligible patients, There are around a, a one point seven million eligible patients. They managed to narrow this number down to thirty-one and a half thousand patients which included around forty thousand episodes of poisoning so a couple of patients there obviously poisoning more than once and the study period that they looked at were the years between 1998 and 2014 and obviously as we alluded to earlier it was published in 2018 so it's taken a long time for them to analyze the data and that's probably because of the such the, the large data set
0: yeah i mean it's quite substantial isn't it when you look at these numbers you're looking at I mean this is, an, this is a gigantic number of overdoses and just goes to show I think the prevalence of this presentation really and, and actually how we do have an epidemic in, in, in mental health and how this can really affect a lot of individuals and, and be a pathway that a lot of individuals may, may choose to go down and how we really do actually need to be up to date and focused on what the best management of these patients are. So looking
1: at the substances used So paracetamol accounted for around forty percent of the of the poisonings. Alcohol was in about thirty-two percent, and then lower down we had NSAIDs at eleven percent, then some antidepressants SSRIs and the SNRIs were about ten percent, and opioids seven and a half. And and that's not massively surprising from my practice. That's kind of similar to what I see. I was looking for tricyclics because that's something I tend to see a lot of tricyclic overdoses. Actually, that was around number that was seventh position, Mm. um, much much lower down. But I suppose it's it's an element of what the young people can get their hands on, mm-hmm. So that makes sense. And yeah. obviously these things, you know, paracetamol you can buy over the counter, NSAIDs can buy over the counter. Alcohol is, is often readily accessible, um, either you know, purchasing it yourself or for your parents or whatever. Um, and so that, I suppose the substances there just match what is available.
0: Hmm. So in terms of demographics for this particular study, um, it was found that poisonings were more likely to occur in those patients who have come from socially deprived backgrounds and that is something that we're seeing consistently in the data surrounding those harder to reach populations those populations who may have some social deprivation and of course those individuals who have a new numerous bio psycho and social issues that go along with these complaints which may be issues at home with domestic violence coming from socially deprived backgrounds and concurrent uh, drug abuse or drug addiction alongside mental ill health all of these factors really do add up to to causing presentations such as the one the ones that we're going to talk about today
1: and the other key point that, that came out from this study is that poisonings have increased in number um, certainly in 2014 a poisoning was around three to five times more likely than 1998 and again that wasn't massively surprising for me to read that kind of reflects what I see in practice mm. that More and more young people are presenting with overdoses and poisonings. So looking at the study overall, strengths, we've kind of alluded to some of them already. The massively large size, they've got some really good figures, some really good data. And it's obviously highly relatable to UK populations because of the the database and where they, they pull their information from. The main weakness is... About forty percent of the records, forty percent of the episodes, didn't record a substance, so that might slightly skew the data. And really, from our point of view as sort of frontline clinicians, there was no real investigation into why this is the increase has occurred or how mm. to help prevent it. Which doesn't, you know, particularly help us uh, on you know seeing these patients on a day to day basis. But I suppose the study there to help inform things like public health initiatives, mm. um, rather than to influence our day-to-day clinical care.
0: I think that's a really important point to make, Matt. I mean, clearly today what we're talking about is how to manage these patients when they present to you having already ingested a particular substance whether that is paracetamol or or alcohol but i think underlying this podcast is a complete appreciation of how really this it's unacceptable for this to be happening mm. in the first place and actually what we need to wake up to is the the fact that we need to get greater prevention schemes and we need to get better at addressing these issues before um, such a catastrophic potentially catastrophic event occurs such as an overdose because these sorts of events will have knock-on effects not just medically but psychologically and potentially transgenerationally so it's really really important to, to to focus on that from just a simple pu- public health message really um, it's something that we appreciate it's not what we're going to go into in massive detail within this podcast um, but it's just important to outline
1: Okay, so that was a brief look at the paper that uh, has helped inspire us to do this podcast. We're now going to move on and talk about the the substances themselves in a bit more detail. Let's talk a little bit about alcohol. Let's talk about uh, some of the features and some of the key aspects.
0: Yeah, sure. So alcohol clearly is a substance that is readily available to a large percentage of the population, whether you can physically buy it yourself or whether it is in and around your household or can be for whatever reason. Once ingested, it is rapidly absorbed in the GI tract. And a lot of the factors as to how much absorption and what effects that will have is actually due down to the individual themselves. So it's down to the volume of uh, distribution Mm. and particularly the tolerance of this specific individual Mm. to alcohol, both of which clearly affect metabolism rates. Now, that's not specifically, however, to say that an individual who has an alcohol dependence, potentially, uh, may have a higher tolerance because, in fact, depending on the length of time that that um, individual has had a tolerance for, dependent on their Comorbidities, there may actually be some concurrent liver failure, mm. renal failure, and other elements that actually mean that that individual is less tolerant to alcohol and certainly, in my practice i 've seen patients who um, due to uh, liver failure and or dependency issues, actually only require a very very small amount of alcohol to have quite significant systemic effects and so it's good to keep in mind that yes tolerance is a factor but just because that individual may have a high alcohol intake doesn't mean that they're automatically tolerant and of course when we're in relatively good health and in younger patients they even if we don't ingest a lot of alcohol on a weekly basis we might actually be quite tolerant to it so it's one of those
1: key, but just while you're on that, on that point, a lot of the alcoholics or alcohol-access patients, whatever you want to call them, um, are often quite cachectic as well, mm. and they won't be able to tolerate large quantities or large volumes of alcohol as opposed to somebody who is bigger, should we say, um, as that higher body water volume.
0: Yeah, so I think it's just something to to bear in mind um, that there is a common misconception mm-hmm. there that the more you drink in general, the more tolerant you will be, which may be uh, correct in certain cases, but not in all further considerations with ingestion of significant amounts of alcohol what we have to bear in mind when we're presented with a case is that often there is co-ingestion with other substances so we need to really make sure that we're trying to get as much history as possible from these patients and we need to ask if this patient has come in with a an overdose of x pill or x medications has alcohol been um, taken Or equally, if this patient is presenting predominantly with um, intoxication due to alcohol, have other medications been taken? Not because those medications may be potentially problematic alongside um, an alcohol overdose, but also because um, the the overdose itself can actually inactivate Mm. medications that are quite crucial to to that person's normal functioning and and reduction of um, ongoing pathology. In terms of when we're assessing patients and in terms of kind of characterising and classifying symptoms, looking at the literature, it tends to give us either mild, moderate or severe symptoms of uh, alcohol intoxication dependent on clearly how much has been ingested and dependent on the background of that patient uh, comorbidity wise. So if we look at some mild features, I'm sure Without being too unpc, we might uh, many of us might actually be uh, very aware of these sim- signs and symptoms. So, so, so these include uh, some disin- disinhibition, uh, emotional lability, so uh, ability to quickly transition through several emotional states, whether that is a euphoric state or one of uh, a more depressive state, dysarthria, and problems with speech, and of course, decreased reaction times loss of fine motor skills and, and judgment. Thinking about more moderate uh, symptoms of alcohol ingestion, Start to think more about visual changes. So, blurred vision, confusion, vomiting, and specifically when we're thinking um, about systemic signs of symptoms, vasodilatation is is a, a big one in, in alcohol intoxication. And so, we may have to start considering what vital signs are therefore going to start to be affected by that. So we're going to have probably an increase in respiratory rates, some tachycardia, some hypotension, maybe alongside that. Moving to our severe category, we're going to start to be thinking about more critical signs or symptoms. So depoplia, thinking about ataxia, hypothermia, specifically those patients coming from the out-of-hospital environment who may have no fixed abode, they are often hypothermic as a baseline hypoglycemia a very very common uh, concurrent uh, problem alongside alcohol ingestion and in uh, severe cases seizures and coma can uh, can occur pre-fatally as a as an additional an additional uh, category, bit of bit. we can get uh, respiratory depression, hypotension. We can lose our airways. In fact, which has been an a common experience of mine um, in patients with uh, uh, patients in, 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 in patient <laughs> <laughs> in patient a common experience within my own clinical practice. You've
1: been to the pub before, and you've never lost your airway. <laughs> uh,
0: and metabolic acidosis can ensue. Um, from from these sort of things, so that's just a, a, a quick overview of the kind of signs and symptoms. So those features that you can get, Matt. When we see these patients, and we're probably now talking about the moderate, severe pre patients. What sort of management are we going to be looking at for these patients? How are we going to um, sort these patients out?
1: Well, as as ever, we're going to adopt our
0: ABCDE
1: approach. We've said it before. That's a surprise. Again. To me. I know. Yeah. <laughs> it's a shock. Oh. <laughs> Not the ABC again. Yes, the ABC again. Or Every the ABD, as I or sometimes ABC, like to call yes, it. Yeah, week, yeah. um, so it's, a, it's an ABCDE with, with supportive management. And that's, if you as a quick aside, uh, there's a lovely resource called Top Space, hmm. which is where we look at our it's a national sort of poisoning database. Um guys based up in Edinburgh produce it. Every emergency department in the in the UK will use it if you're doing when you're doing your placements in emergency medicine you'll probably see it being used. It's essentially a massive database that tells you how to manage every overdose under the sun, including yeah. alcohol.
0: They're really good as well. If you if you want to ring up and actually oh, yeah. get advice they have 24 um, 7 toxicology specialists whether that's a specialist nurse or a toxicologist and you can actually ring the national poisoning center and the national poisoning services and they they are manned and speak to a clinician usually this is reserved for more rarer overdoses yeah. but if you're struggling with a patient Um, at all they will go systematically go through that patient with you and give you some really really good advice it's well worth it i've uh, frequently used Toxbase and a couple of on a couple of occasions i have actually called up to get some some personal advice and it's really really good
1: Mm. yeah so Toxbase is a good resource remember it Toxbase will often often mention the term called supportive management and it will say for pretty much every uh, overdose start with supportive management what does that actually mean it essentially means doing an a to e assessment and just making sure everything's stable. Mm. So particularly with your alcohol, you're going to be making sure the airway's okay. You're going to be looking for other injuries because often if you're, you know, we mentioned the ataxia, you, you might fall over, you might mm. bang your head. You often get these patients and they might have been in a fight or there have been some sort of altercation, so you need to make sure there's no other injuries and they're not, not injured in that way. Um, you're going to be doing some bloods, looking for certainly a, an alcohol level, but also to make sure there's been no other co-ingestions because you kind of have to assume so, if, if the alcohol has been taken as part of a mental health crisis, mm. you have to assume that they might have taken something else as mm. well. So, you're going to be checking a paracetamol level, checking a, a, a salicylate level, and checking levels of their prescribed medication if appropriate, something like phenytoin or lithium sodium valproate, which patients might overdose on.
0: So, Matt, I am um, within the, the the out of hospital environment, mm. particularly for drugs like paracetamol. Um, they're was and and continues to be a movement towards uh, giving activated charcoal mm. if uh, this presentation is within usually within an hour. Yeah. So so can we give out activated charcoal to our patients who have ingested a significant amount of alcohol? We can do.
1: It won't have any effect on them at all. Okay. Um, so in terms of the alcohol, um, <laughs> but I suppose if, if you're worried about them taking something else, or if you've yeah. evidence they've taken something else within that hour, then you might give it. Mm. But if it's purely alcohol, then we, we don't give it. Isn't it doesn't, it doesn't affect. The absorption rate, which is the main reason you give activated charcoal, which is basically just really high-dose carbon. Because alcohol is absorbed so rapidly, it doesn't have the the time to, to have an effect. So we don't tend to, to give activated charcoal for pure alcohol overdoses. So really, the, the majority of alcohol attendances, certainly in my practice, you tend just to, to monitor them. You do this supportive management, in inverted commas. Um, I did my inverted commas, and then I realised we we're doing a podcast, and then you could see me doing a, I did the inverted commas there. The majority of them you would just observe and send them home in about six hours once they're sobered up, or less than six hours. But talking about that severe category that we talked about earlier, where you have those those severe signs and symptoms and those pre-fatal symptoms, some medications that you might consider is sodium bicarbonate if they're severely acidotic. Almost always, though, it will resolve with fluid and time. But if, they're, if they've got a nasty metabolic acidosis, they can sometimes go into an alcoholic ketoacidosis, which is, is a really high mortality. And that's where you're going to be using your sodium bicarbonate. I say you, it's going to be somebody, a, a senior doctor in emergency medicine or an ITU anaesthetic type, type person, not you guys with F1s. That is a point to consider. Um, and you can also consider hemodialysis if the, the poisoning is that severe or if the patient deteriorates despite maximum medical therapy. And I suppose another point, the other medication that we, we're often quite good at giving is, uh, is Pabronex and, and considering our c hmm. score. Um, Pabronex is, is essentially high dose vitamins and thiamine helps prevent vernicas uh, and then um, encephalopathies. And CWAR, for those who don't know, is the... I can't remember the exact definition. Of the clinical Institute of Withdrawal of Alcohol, something like that. But it's basically a way of scoring patients who are dependent on alcohol and preventing them from withdrawing. You essentially give a suitable dose of chloride which is often termed Librium, to prevent these patients having withdrawal symptoms. On discharge, you do want to be advising these patients about reducing their intake, getting appropriate support for that, Lots of patients might suddenly stop drinking alcohol because they want to stop, but actually the likelihood of them succeeding by that through that route is very small, and actually they risk things like having withdrawal, which can result in seizures, can actually be a lot worse for them. So often it's a slightly unusual thing to do, it is when you're discharging patients who are dependent on alcohol, you need to tell them to keep drinking, hmm. because otherwise they risk going, going into withdrawal and having these seizures. Um, if they do want to stop drinking, they need to do it properly in a proper program,
0: community-based or via the GP. And I think, I think if we kind of think about this moving forward, I've seen some really, really excellent initiatives um, in the kind of several emergency departments that I've either been linked with from the out-of-hospital environment or have been lucky enough to work in as a as a practitioner, where we've had uh, specialist alcohol services mm. available, and so. If you've got one of those services running within your um, institution, then then use them. They're really, really beneficial, and it just brings about that holistic care to the patient where you provided that management, and then these um, individu- individuals can have services that are linked in with them. And often this is via liaison with the GP, this is talking about alcohol rehabilitation programmes, but also it might just be something as simple as referring to um, some some voluntary sector organisations like um, St Pentrox or something like that, that that may have quite a significant bearing in that patient's life moving forward and, and specifically may try to address some of those Um, psychological socioeconomic factors that that are going on alongside that alcohol dependence so I think it's really important to consider that whilst it's not an acute management at the time Mm -hmm. we need to avoid this uh, kind of rotating circle of acutely managing and not putting in place preventative measures because really we're moving towards this more holistic style of medicine after uh, lots of years of realizing that this will be a concurrent problem Mm -hmm. if we don't do something about it.
1: Yeah, so that was a brief jaunt through alcohol in excess and how to manage it. We're now going to move on and talk about paracetamol, obviously a very commonly overdosed medication. Joe, tell us about a bit about paracetamol toxicity.
0: Yeah, so paracetamol clearly is a readily available drug that we can get over the counter. There are initiatives in place to try and reduce excessive purchasing of paracetamol over the counter and as you no doubt have experienced and um, i think it's two packets now isn't it that you're yeah. allowed to buy or one of paracetamol one of ibuprofen i can't quite remember to, to try and reduce this but clearly it's very very easy to get hold of usually um Patients may have paracetamol already at home and can, and can buy more or can go around to different stores to buy alcohol because it, it just can't be monitored like that. And so it's very easy to get. And by that, I mean, it's not a prescription only medicine. And it's probably why we see a higher number of uh, paracetamol overdoses in comparison to some of the other categories like SSRIs or opiates, which are prescribed by the uh, GP or, or other professional And so consumption of significant amounts of paracetamol, the main concern that we have is hepatotoxicity. There is some minor renal toxicity with this, but predominantly we're worried about the liver. And it's actually the most common cause of acute liver failure in the UK uh, when we look at the literature. Some features that are associated with paracetamol overdose, clearly we're thinking about nausea and vomiting and abdominal pain. and These are the features that you're going to see in most of the patients that uh, present to you. There may be features of liver failure um, evident, but this is usually after quite a long period of time after ingestion, if there's concurrent liver failure um, going on already, potentially if there's an ongoing history of many overdoses. And really what we're going to be looking for is those acute signs and symptoms over the liver failure. So things like nausea, vomiting, abdominal pain, etc. The management of paracetamol overdose is actually based on the amount ingested and actually the time that it's taken to ingest these. And what we're thinking about in terms of toxic levels is anything less than 75 milligrams per kilogram is technically considered to be non-toxic in most patients. Anything above 150 milligrams per kilogram can be serious and therefore there is quite a a grey area in the middle actually, isn't there? And I think that's where clinical judgment actually has to come in and where time taken with those overdoses and co-ingested agents really start to play into how we would manage these patients. And thinking about management, Matt, what are we going to do with these patients? Guess what, what, Joe?
1: (laughs) It's an ABC again. (laughs) Is it? It is. Yeah, So again... A, B, C, D, E assessment as, as ever. Particularly, and I won't, we won't go through that because we've, I've had a bit of a rant about that already, this podcast. And there's many more podcasts to come and I'm going to have to say A, B, C, D, E over and over again. Well, maybe so, I'll take
0: this section next.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but particularly looking at, our, you know, during our ABCDE, again, we're going to take some bloods. We're going to obviously include liver function tests and use an E's because that's where we we'll make sure there's no toxicity. And we're also going to take an INR or a coagulation Obviously, if you have liver failure, you're going to have a coagulopathy as well. And the INR is included in the uh, King's Liver Transplant Guidelines, so you need an INR. And also, a paracetamol and level. Now, the paracetamol level needs to be taken at four hours post the time of ingestion. And that's because there's the world-famous... I'm going to say world-famous... Uh, NAC graph? Yeah, it's called a graph. Chart, know. graph. A chart, yeah. yeah. And that basically starts at four hours. So you, you take a paracetamol level... And essentially if it's above the line on the graph, then you you require
0: treatment with NAC, which is acetylcysteine. Yeah, and we'll put this graph in the we'll call them show notes, show shall notes. we? After so that you guys can can have a look and kind of make reference to that.
1: So as, as most of our students know, uh, NAC releases glutathione stores from the liver, and this helps protect it against against toxicity from the paracetamol. The infusion itself is white-based. And it's normally three bags over about 21 hours or so. Commonly, patients will have a mild allergic reaction to this. And now, obviously, the risk of liver failure is quite severe if you're requiring treatment with NAC. Therefore, you have to continue the infusion. Most Obviously, most allergens, if you're giving an infusion and patients having a, an allergic reaction to it, you, your reaction is to stop the infusion. That's, that's safe. Hmm. But certainly with NAC, it's one of the few exceptions where you need to continue the infusion but essentially, you slow it down, so you halve the rate, and you give some antihistamines. Sometimes, I've seen steroids have been given. I wouldn't bother giving steroids. I'll just give antihistamines personally. Once the infusion's finished that's sort of 21 hours, realistically, it takes a bit longer than that because the bag has to be changed over and made up. So it's normally about a day. But after the completion of that infusion, again, you want to check another INR and another ALT, and you want to make sure that they are they are satisfactory, they are normal, or, or normal for the patient. If they're not, you can give NAC, again, same sort of infusion, same weight-based uh, infusion there. Now, we're going on to the, 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 the numbers. As Joe mentioned before, the key numbers are 150 and 75 milligrams per kilogram. If you're taking a single overdose, so that's if you've taken all of the medication within an hour's period. If you've taken more than 150 milligrams per kilogram, that, as Joe alluded to, could be, could be serious. So if you are unable to get a paracetamol level within eight hours from the time of the overdose, often patients present late or the lab might be delayed, then you need to start NAC straight away rather than waiting for the level to come back. If they present at, say for, for convenience, if patient presents at four hours, you can take the level, you can wait for the level to come back as long as it won't be over eight hours. But anything after eight hours with that amount of paracetamol taken, greater than 150 milligrams per kilogram, that can be dangerous. So you need to start NAC. If it's less than 150 mg per kilo, then you can wait for the level to come back before deciding whether to start treatment or not. Now, I mentioned that that is a single overdose. The other way if patients Often present is with a staggered overdose. This is where paracetamol is taken in steps over over the period of an hour. We often see this sometimes as a deliberate overdose. Every now and again, it's a non-deliberate overdose. Classically, something like toothache, which is very painful, patients mm. might take something like codeine and then take some paracetamol alongside as well because mm. they don't realise the two are the same. Or
0: lemsips or, or something exactly like that. that yeah. yeah,
1: or just they're taking it every four hours and then they're taking more than they more than they should. Mm. And so these are technically staggered overdoses. And the difference here is that it's more difficult to detect. Well, you can't really use the, the treatment graph like, like we do for single acute overdoses. So what we have to do for patient safety reasons is start NAC straight away as soon as the patient presents and then take that paracetamol level at four hours after the last time they had any paracetamol. Now, the guidelines have changed reasonably recently. So if there's no features of liver failure clinically, if they have a normal ALT, and a normal INR and a paracetamol less than 10, you can stop the NAC. If any of those are abnormal, though, or paracetamol level is above 10, then you need to continue the NAC. So that was a, a brief look at paracetamol in overdose and the management of. Um, we're now going to talk about the mental health aspects of this. And Joe, I know this is something you've been thinking about recently. Tell us what, you, what you've been thinking about.
0: In general or just related, <laughs> or related to okay.
1: the, the awesome setup I just gave? Right, because you don't
0: want kind of a, just a verbal stream of my thoughts as no, well. Not again. Yeah. Sure. So we, we alluded to this at the start of the podcast, didn't we? And, and we talked about the, the, the acute management of it. But clearly alongside this, we've got a duty of care to these patients to consider the psychological and sociocultural aspects of of managing this and some of the preventive um, strategies that we might put into place for these patients and also just to do a a general assessment of their mental health. And I think that um, it's generally accepted through guidance and and from, from our experts that all deliberate overdoses Really should be reviewed by the mental health team so that they can be offered a, a full assessment uh, and and the support uh, gained from that from that assessment moving forward.
1: I think that's the key phrase: offered support because mm. that's something that I I struggle with from my point of view. Mm. I quite like a problem you can fix, yeah. and mental health isn't a you know it's not a problem you can fix. Yeah. It's like any other chronic health problem, really. That patients will have these thoughts, feelings, symptoms for long periods of time, if not their entire life, and it's about how they manage those symptoms, mm. rather than here's the medication and you're cured. Yeah,
0: yeah absolutely. That it's not it's not something within that acute management that um, where there is a miracle cure. In particular, the sort of individuals that we're going to be thinking about that need potentially a more urgent mental health assessment are those patients who are at high risk now. I'm going to list a few pa- patients that are at high risk, but really when it comes down to it, it's a, it's about the judgment at that time because these sort of factors are very changeable person to person and you need to make that clinical decision. Um, and so really in terms of mental health, doing lists like this is is beneficial to, to some extent, uh, but it really doesn't um, cover all of those that, that may be at risk. Some risk factors that we could think about Those who are of male gender are particularly likely to have uh, episodes of self-harm, whether that's to do with overdosing or other forms of self-harm and in fact also have an increased risk of of suicide mm. clearly those who have previously had an overdose and, and are now presenting again um, are are at higher risk of of recurrence or those that deliberately self-harm in the literature looking at age uh, gaps it does say that um, those kind of above 40 or, or between kind of 40 and 45 years although that's very very questionable isn't it yeah. and and uh, it's quite a quite a, a small age gap to consider. And what we were really talking about earlier in terms of those coexisting issues that may actually cause this to be, uh, cause deliberate self-poisoning to, uh, to reoccur again, things like concurrent mental health illness, those who are from deprived backgrounds, um, low socioeconomic groups, those who have concurrent drug use or concurrent um, alcohol dependence or if there's been significant past or or current life events, maybe that's a recent bereavement, divorce, etc., and that the patient is going through. The general approach that we want to make as, as non-specialist clinicians in this environment is we need to make sure that we sit we're sitting down with that patient and we're asking Open questions in a non-judgmental environment, and 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 that we've got open body language, and and really expressing that concern and empathy for the patient because this is a really significant life crisis and life event that they've had. It's really important to establish rapport with these patients, which may be difficult, particularly um in that post-exposure mm-hmm. state where these patients are often confused. They can be combative. They can they they may or may not be um, difficult to manage, um, and and so this that may be. Difficult, but it's important that we try our utmost to establish a good rapport, um, which will ultimately not not only help in this mental health assessment, but it will help in the entire management moving forward. And then identifying supportive and, and protective factors that we may be able to um, kind of utilise, emphasise, and um, moving forward. And again, talking to our specialist colleagues, whether that's um, part of the alcohol services or uh, drug and addiction services, there are a lot of areas that you can refer to. Things like AdAction and um, some Petrox, and as, as as a couple of voluntary sector organisations that that deal with this, that can kind of co-join up with actual NHS services, that are really good.
1: Right, so I think that's pretty much everything we wanted to to discuss this uh, this time on our up to date dose. So just a quick summary then. So we've been through the the paper which inspired this podcast, which basically showed that the rates of self-harm, the rates of poisoning are increasing in young people in the UK. We then looked at alcohol overdose, some of the key features. Remember, the majority of them will be okay with supportive management, but actually there's that severe category where they're severely acidotic, where they have respiratory depression, where they become hypotensive that you might need to intervene on. And we've talked about paracetamol overdose, obviously a very common occurrence. Make sure you take your paracetamol level at four hours and start NAC if required. And then we finish by talking about mental health and the wider implications that has for patients. Try and be empathetic, ask open questions and involve our mental health teams early. Um, Joe, you've got a witty sign-off prepared? You're smiling already. I'm I'm, I'm getting ready for this. Well, I'm just
0: just trying to think of uh, a witty sign-off. Perhaps... Something along the lines of, don't get too drunk on this knowledge, guys. And I think that's pretty much all I've got <laughs> right, right off the cuff. Although I think I've done well, because I think I've done the last two or three of these witty sign-offs. I think I actually um, need to step up to the to the game.
1: No, I, th- I did, maybe one.
0: <laughs> I did a funny. I did.
1: A, I made a joke.
0: Okay, guys, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.